Hi everyone, uh, my name is James. I'm a third year studying computer and data science. I'll be doing today's reading from Hebrews 10, and you can follow along in your handouts. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing. It's dreadful things to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Well, I wonder, uh, what would it take to get you to give up on Jesus? What would it take to, give you, uh, to get you to stop following him? Maybe it would take something dramatic. If someone came up to you and stuck a gun to your head and said that if you don't renounce Jesus at this very moment, then they'll kill you. Or what if you lived in a country like North Korea? where if being discovered as a Christian means that you'll be sent to prison for hard labour in brutal conditions until your body finally gives way and dies. I mean, would that do it? Would the threat of that kind of suffering be enough to get you to give up on Jesus? Or perhaps it would be something more subtle. No dramatic moment of a gun to your head, but just the slow drip the lure of a comfortable life, of fitting in with the culture around you. The busyness of life that just pushes Jesus to the sidelines until eventually he's out of your life altogether. Maybe it'll be something dramatic, maybe something more subtle. But what would it take to get you to give up on Jesus? Today we're finishing our series in the book of Hebrews, which was written to Christians who were facing pressure to do exactly that, to give up on Jesus. These were Jewish Christians, that's why it's called Hebrews, who had grown up in Judaism and then recognised that Jesus was the Messiah, God's chosen king. But as soon as they started following Jesus, they faced persecution. And pressure to go back to Judaism. I don't know if you noticed in the reading that we just had read out, it, it, it describes some of the things that they had faced as followers of Jesus. Have a look again at verse 32 to 34. It says, Remember those early days after you'd received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Sounds like a pretty tough situation, doesn't it? They were facing pressure. And the purpose of Hebrews is to help these Christians stand firm. To stick with Jesus and not give up on him. 
Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, you, you may remember that these Jewish Christians were tempted to ditch Jesus and not just and not become atheists, but to go back to their old ways, to the old covenant and its priesthood and sacrifices. And so what the author does here in chapter 10 is to show them that the old covenant cannot save them. And that if they turn their back on Jesus, then there's no other way they can be saved. Have a look in your handouts with me at Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that were coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now you can probably see it there. His goal is to show them that the Old Testament sacrifices can not save them. If they turn their back on Jesus, nothing about the impressive temple and all, and all the sights and smells and sounds of the sacrifices that go on there, none of that would be able to save them. But then that raises a pretty big question. If the Old Testament sacrifices can't actually take away sin, then why did God ask them to be offered in the first place? Doesn't that seem a bit pointless? God required these sacrifices in the Old Testament, uh, but why if they didn't actually take away sin? Well, these verses give us two reasons for why God gave them. I don't know if you noticed them. One's in verse 3. They were an annual reminder of sins. You see, the Old Testament law required that year after year, the Israelites had to bring an animal to the temple to be sacrificed, and when they did that, God would forgive them. But it's not like those sacrifices themselves intrinsically, mechanistically, or or somehow magically took away sin. Now, even people in the Old Testament, like David, recognise that. In Psalm 51, for example, he says, you know, it's it's not the sacrifices themselves that you're pleased with. It's a heart that is genuinely repentant. And that's what it says in Psalm 40 as well, which Hebrews 10 quotes just a few verses later. So these sacrifices didn't actually take away sins. Instead, God was reminding people of their sins and the need for blood to be shed so that they could be forgiven. Every year, a tangible reminder of the seriousness of their sin. Every year, as blood was shed, a reminder of the cost of their rebellion against God. So that's the first reason that God required these sacrifices, a reminder. And secondly, the sacrifices were a shadow that pointed to a future reality. Have a look at verse 1. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that were coming, not the realities themselves. You see, God gave the people a sacrificial system to point them forward to the one true sacrifice for sin when Jesus offered his own body on the cross. God was giving them the categories, the framework, to understand what Jesus' death accomplished. So that even though many of them wouldn't grasp at the time, 
They could look back at Jesus dying on the cross as the new Passover lamb who fulfilled what the Old Testament always pointed to. So that they would understand that Jesus was bearing the punishment for their sin in their place to forgive them. So the law and the, and the sacrifices had a very important purpose, even though they didn't actually take away sin. They were a reminder of sin and a shadow that pointed to a future reality. But here's the thing. Once that future reality arrived, there's no use going back to the shadow. Remember, these Jewish Christians were tempted to turn their back on Jesus, maybe thinking that God would still forgive them through the old sacrifices. But the author of Hebrews is showing them that it just won't work. Have a look with me at verse 11 to 14. This is what he says. Day after day, every priest of the old covenant stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins on the cross, he sat down, job done, at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He's saying that Jesus' death was a once-for-all sacrifice that never needs to be repeated and can never be added to. If you've trusted in Christ, all your sins, past, present and future, have been forgiven. And so as he sums up in verse 18, And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Those old ways were just the shadow, but Jesus is the reality. The only way to be forgiven, therefore, and to be perfected, to be perfected, to be made righteous, to be brought into God's presence, the only way for that to happen is that through Jesus. And so then in verses 19 to 25, the second point on your outline, this is where he really drives his point home. This section sums up not just chapter 10, but the case that he's been building throughout the whole letter. So have a look with me at verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, God's presence, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Do you get what he's driving at? He's saying, since Jesus alone can give us access to God and confidence to stand before him. Since Jesus alone can cleanse our consciences from sin and guilt. Therefore, let us draw near to God through him. Hold unswervingly to Jesus and the hope he gives us. 
rely on Jesus and have confidence to draw near to God through him. And this is really the burden of the letter to the Hebrews, that they and we would put our confidence in Jesus and that we would keep our confidence in Jesus. If you had to sum it up in three words, stick with Jesus. And that's what he really wants for these people and for us as well. And as he writes this letter, he knows that if they're going to stick with Jesus, if they're going to go the distance, then they're not going to be able to do it alone. They're going to need other Christians to encourage and spur them on. So have a look in your handout where we see this in verses 24 to 25. He goes on, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Because here's the thing. Christians are not lone wolves. Following Jesus is hard, and it's not something we can do alone. Even though I often like to think that I could and that I don't need other people, I can, I can do it just fine myself, the reality is we need others to spur us on, to keep us from drifting. And he's saying that if they give up meeting together, then chances are that in the long run, they'll give up on Jesus too. That's a key point. If they give up meeting together, then chances are that in the long run, they'll give up on Jesus too. Not because, you know, church attendance is somehow kind of mandatory for being a Christian. It's not. But simply because over time, without the encouragement of others, we drift. Not the dramatic moment, the gun to the head, but the subtle drift, the lure of fitting in and living for ourselves. This is true for us too, isn't it? Even though, if you're anything like me, we don't like to admit it. If we give up meeting together with other Christians, then chances are that in the long run, we'll give up on Jesus too. So let's sum up where we've come so far in Hebrews 10. In verses 1 to 18, we saw that Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice is the only way that we can gain access to God. And because of that, in verse 19 to 25, he argues that therefore they should draw near to God through Jesus, hold unswervingly to the hope we have in him, and meet together to spur each other on in living for Jesus. Now that right there is the tip of the spear. It's the point that he's driving at. And now in the rest of Hebrews 10, he doesn't move on to a separate point, but rather he gives backup. He gives more supporting arguments for this main point, which he continues driving at, by the way, through chapter 11 and 12 as well, though we won't see that this semester. So now in the rest of Hebrews chapter 10, he shows them, his supporting arguments, what happens if we reject Jesus and what happens if we stand firm in Jesus. So we'll look at each in turn. Firstly, what happens if we reject Jesus? Have a look with me in your handouts in verses 26 to 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, 
but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now those are quite startling verses in quite a few ways, and they're verses that are quite often misunderstood. Does this mean that if I put my trust in Jesus, but then knowingly sin anyway, his sacrifice doesn't cover my sin? And that I'm going to face the full wrath of God's judgment? Well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. In context, he's not talking about someone who is trusting Jesus and yet sins after that point anyway. In context, he's talking about someone who rejects Jesus altogether and thinks that they can rely on other sacrifices to atone for their sin. He's saying that if you, to that person, he's saying that if you receive the knowledge about Jesus and yet deliberately reject him, there's no other sacrifice that will save you from your sins. So if you're going to reject Jesus, you better live a sinless life because that's the only way that we can be saved. Now, this context becomes even clearer when we read the very next verses. From 28, it says, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses, the old covenant, died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who has insulted the Spirit of grace? He's saying it was bad enough to reject the old covenant. So how much more severe will the punishment be if you know about Jesus and yet knowingly reject him? He goes on in verses 30 to 31 to drive this point home. For we know him who said, this is quoting God himself from the Old Testament. God says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now again, those are confronting words, aren't they? And of course, he's not saying this to manipulate anyone, but simply to open their eyes to reality so that they would see how big the stakes are and that they would stick with Jesus. And this is an important reminder for us too. Let's be crystal clear on this. If you are here today and you knowingly reject Jesus, the consequences are severe. There is no other way for your sins to be atoned for. There is no other way for you to be saved. If you reject Jesus, the consequences are both deadly and eternal. And it's because of God's love for us and his desire for us to be saved that he wants to warn us of this, put this reality in front of us and beckon us to himself through the blood of Jesus. As God says in Ezekiel 33, 11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and be saved. What happens if we reject Jesus? 
There's no other way to be saved, so we must face God's eternal judgment. But secondly, what happens if we stand firm in Jesus? We'll have a look with me in your handouts at verses 32 to 36. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured in great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. What happens when we stand firm in Jesus? When we keep our confidence in him? It will be richly rewarded. And when we grasp this, it transforms our perspective and our attitude to the pressures that we face in this life. If you noticed, it's a little bit weird at first when you read verse 34. It says, You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Joyfully. I mean, surely that's a typo, right? It wouldn't be the only typo that was in our Bible reading today. <laughs> joyfully. How can that happen? I mean, imagine if the secret police started raiding the houses of Christians in Australia. Imagine they confiscated your property. Imagine they wiped your bank balance. Although most of you are students, so I don't imagine that would make that much of a difference anyway. Um, And I'm in ministry, so not for me either. But still, if that happened to me, there would be a lot of words to describe what my reaction would be. I'm not sure joyfully would be one of them. Even as you look in the political landscape in Australia now, we look at, we're looking at the possibility of Christians following of Jesus losing a lot of the rights and privileges that we're used to enjoying. If you look at the reaction, I don't think joyfully is one of the words that I'd use to describe it. So how could they possibly face that kind of suffering with joy? Well, the second half of the verse tells us, doesn't it? They accepted the confiscation of their property joyfully. Why? Because they knew that they had better and lasting possessions waiting for them. That's the game changer. They knew that no matter what people took away from them in this life, they were looking forward to better and lasting things in the life to come. And so they could look at the temporary things of this world and not be attached to them, but to joyfully be reminded that they were looking to far better things in the future. They had an eternal perspective. They could say with the Apostle Paul, who suffered greatly in his life for Jesus, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Friends, this life feels long. But compared to eternity, it's a heartbeat. It's a nanosecond. And the sufferings that we face in this life for following Jesus are real. But they are far outweighed by the eternal glory that is waiting for us if we trust in Jesus. 
And as we fix our eyes on that, it will radically transform our perspective and our priorities and our attitudes to the hardships that we might face in this life. What happens when we stand firm in Jesus? We will be richly rewarded, receiving what God has promised us. Eternal life, where there will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. Friends, this is a reminder not just for them, but for us as well. If we're going to stick with Jesus, which is the burden of this passage, then we need to have that same eternal perspective. To recognise on the one hand the consequences for rejecting Jesus and the reward to come for standing firm in him. So it's worth asking the question, what would it take to get you to give up on Jesus? I mean, maybe it would take something dramatic, like someone sticking a gun to your head. But more likely in our context, the greater danger is far more subtle, isn't it? The slow drip. The lure of living a comfortable life. Of fitting in with the culture around us. The busyness of life and of uni that just pushes Jesus to the sidelines. If any of us, myself included, think that we're immune from that danger, we're fooling ourselves. So how can we guard against it? Well, for one thing, we've got to keep reminding ourselves of these eternal truths, eternal perspective. But Hebrews 10 urges us, if we're going to do that, don't give up meeting together with other Christians. Make it your priority to gather with them, to spur them on and to be spurred on by them. To gather with other Christians that will help you fix your eyes on Jesus and the eternal glory that is to come. I mean, let's get really concrete. There are ten weeks between right now and our next public meeting at the start of semester two. Those are ten weeks in which you will either drift away from Jesus or grow closer to him. There's no kind of treading water, there's no middle ground. A living as a Christian in a fallen world means that every single day, the world and sin and the devil are trying to pull us away from Jesus. And we are either going with the flow or allowing him to draw us closer to himself. And so it's worth asking the question, how will you make it your priority to meet with other Christians over the winter break? How can you be involved at your church? Uh, but not just going regularly, or that, uh, that's a wonderful thing to be doing, but, but when you go to church, how can you be going there with the mindset to actively spur others on in their faith? You know, what if even you took a few minutes as you drove to church whether that's with your family, some friends, or on your own. Take a few moments as you drive to church and set aside some time to pray and just ask God, please God, would you give me a few opportunities to encourage some people today? 
Please, God, would you give me an opportunity to, to share with someone else after the service something from the sermon that really stood out to me and challenged me? What if you took that kind of mindset in to be a blessing to others and to spur them on? And if you're not currently involved in a church regularly, I can't encourage you more strongly, get connected to one ASAP. Because your local church might not be impressive, but if it faithfully teaches the Bible, it is the primary means that God will use to strengthen you, to nourish you, and to draw you to himself and grow you in the likeness of his son Jesus. If you don't know a good church, to get connected to, feel free to come chat to me after the service. I'd be happy to recommend a good one that's close to where you live. Or there's a church that meets in this building at 6.30 on a Sunday. They teach the Bible. They love Jesus. So over this winter break, make, church is really the big one. Make that your priority. And if you want to go deeper as well, consider coming to MYC. Join hundreds of uni students as we come together to dig deep into the Bible, to remind ourselves of the glories of what Jesus has done for us. Whatever it looks like, can I encourage you to think about how you might use this winter break to meet together with other followers of Jesus who you can encourage and who can encourage you so that you can stick with Jesus. To close, let's hear again these words from Hebrews 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching.